up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Superman Forever Radio. I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Now, here at Superman Forever Radio, I look at various aspects of Superman throughout the many mediums and years he's been a part of the pop culture landscape. And we got a lot to do this week. We begin going episode by episode through the entire run of Superman the Animated Series this week and begin our character profiles, as well as looking at the relationship of Lois and Clark just in time for Valentine's Day. Before we do that, there are several things I want to talk to you about. One, let me kindly direct your attention over to YouTube, where you can find me on the latest episode of Cayman Stoll's Superman Video Podcast. And Cayman was gracious enough to have me on his show to talk Smallville's latest episode, Beacon, which was phenomenal. And I love connecting with other Superman fans, and I think Cayman and I could literally talk for hours. So if you aren't watching his show, you are missing out. So thank you for having me on, Cayman, and I really look forward to being on again. Secondly, last week I talked about a movement started by my fellow Superman podcasters from Crisis to Crisis, um, hosted by Jeffrey Taylor and Michael Bailey. And they are trying to get Dark Knight over Metropolis printed as a trade paperback. And I support them 110%. And they have found the contact person to submit email requests to. So let me go over what you can do to help. And I'm going to use the exact words from Jeffrey and Michael via the Superman homepage. Ian Sattler is currently the man in charge of collected editions at DC Comics. Just send him an email requesting the publication of this book at ian.sattler at dccomics.com. So that's E-N-I-A-N dot Sattler, S-A-T-T-L-E-R at dccomics.com. And I will post that email on the show notes this week. And here are the guidelines of what to put in the email. In your own words, explain why you think the story is important should be published in a collected format. Remember that Ian's a busy man and might receive a lot of these emails, so keep it brief for his sake. Don't demand it or be rude about it, please. And yes, be polite. Please, just be polite. You're representing Superman fandom at large, so please remember to use your manners. Superman would. And uh, mention that you heard about this on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. And it's not about ego for them. It just simply gives a focused voice for the movement to have the story collected. Now, this is important. If DC agrees, please pre-order the book. It's important that you buy it. But even more important that you pre-order it when it's solicited. That way DC knows how, to, how many to print. And we will make order, they'll make order information available when and if it's solicited, both um, on their podcast, over on the Superman homepage, and of course I'll add it here on supermanforever.com. And you'll be able to order it either directly through the Superman homepage 
or use the diamond ordering number at your local comic shop. And I'd like to add, of course, Amazon.com. But if you have a local comic shop, please support them. They're, they're kind of becoming a dying breed. And I have sent my email to Mr. Sattler. Now, if you're looking for the right words, um, you know, check out the post at the Superman homepage. Um, in the comment section, most of us have posted our actual emails in there just for an idea. So remember that Dark Knight over Metropolis, Batman number zero trade. Thirdly, I've been served with some legal action from last week's episode. Yeah. Now allow me to read the letter that I did receive. And it is from Devils ADV Okate Esquire, uh, General Counsel Apocalypse. It reads, Mr. Weeder, it came to my attention that in your show closing for episode number 13 of Superman Forever Radio, which featured my client Darkseid as a guest, that you failed to mention the creator of Darkseid, Apocalypse, and all associated fourth world characters, one Jacob Kurtzberg, a.k.a. Jack King Kirby. Now, I understand this is a grievous error, just a, just a simple oversight. However, if this is not rectified in short order, this matter will be forwarded to the heirs of the late Mr. Kurtzberg. I understand that they are quite litigious as of late with their involvement in getting a piece of the action, as they say, of the Disney Corporation, whom we also represent. In regards to their purchase of Marvel and the many Silver Age and even Golden Age characters, Mr. Kurtzberg either created on his own or co-created for that company. In other words, I believe you do not want to get on their bad side. In any event, my client would love to be on the show again, as he has yet to find a V or Sequest podcast to be a co-host for. However, he is closely monitoring the situation with Smallville Season 10 in the hopes of them getting it right. All I am allowed to say in regards to that matter is there may be a special television version of the Omega Sanction in the future for the current showrunners, where they are forced to be the showrunners of some of the most poorly received and horrific television programs of all time, over and over and over and over again until they turn out a hit. My Mother the Car, I believe, is the first show they have to run. And this was signed, uh, Devol's ADVO Ickett, Esquire, General Counsel Apocalypse. Now, this was a major mistake on my part. You can never, never forget the king. So I apologize to Mr. Kirby, Darkseid, and the entire fandom at large. Darkseid was created by Jack the King Kirby, and I hope he can forgive me from beyond. I'm sorry, Mr. Kirby. And when I tried to contact Lord Darkseid, I was told he is currently in a villa somewhere in Tuscany trying to find himself while watching a monk marathon. I am assured that he will return at some point, and I'd like to thank Steve Rogers for passing that message on, and also wish Steve, Mr. Rogers a happy birthday. And finally, a little secret that I've been keeping under my hat has been the Superman Forever iPhone app, and it was rejected from the iTunes store. And I had a feeling that would happen with all my copyrighted material here, with all the, the Superman thing, which is protected in podcast form because it's a free download. And after all, I am talking about Superman. But uh, this thing would have been great. Um, the design, it would have updated the episode automatically and included a phone wallpaper, a PDF with extra notes or screenshots, and a ringtone just to make sure that those that paid the $1.99 price tag got something for their money. My preference would have been to offer it for free, but the app offering that wasn't an option. So that adding that extra material would have been the route that would have been taken just to make it worth the money. But those extras will be included on the show's posting only at supermanforever.com. So every week you'll be able to find an iPhone or Droid wallpaper, an MP3, MP3 ringtone, 
and a PDF with screenshots from Superman the Animated Series. And just to give my listeners a little something extra for their time. So remember to visit supermanforever.com and get your swag. So now, without further ado, let's get back to the big show. In 1996, Lois Lane and Clark Kent were joined in matrimony. In today's society, many people wait to get married, but most don't wait for almost 60 years. Lois and Clark have, been, have had a lot of ups and downs in their relationship before finally wedding, finding wedded bliss. Lois and Clark both appeared first in Action Comics number 1 in 1938, when Clark asked her out on a date. In the Golden Age, their relationship was pretty harsh. Lois was an aggressive, story-minded reporter, and Clark was completely milquetoast. And uh, really, she didn't do anything to spare his feelings. Now, it's easy to paint Lois into a corner of being the damsel in distress that Superman must constantly rescue, but their relationship is so much deeper than that. Over all these years, Lois has been a source of inspiration and a moral compass for Superman, even when she was being mean. Superman's humanity, although planted deeply by his adoptive parents, the Kents, is maintained and balanced by his relationship by, with Lois. And their story is pivotal to the mythology of the Superman universe and cannot be underscored enough. Lois provides a sounding board for Superman while also challenging him to do more. In their first encounter, Lois rebuffs Clark's request for a date with no attempt to spare his feelings. Later, while on the date, Lois makes sure to be clear that she has no desire to be there with him. Superman, however, caught Lois Lane's attention. What with the muscles and the super strength? And this would be the dynamic for many years. Lois would rebuff Clark, chase the story, get in trouble, and Superman would save the day. And Clark would regrettably play up his meek and mild persona around the Daily Planet, sadly lamenting the fact that Lois only saw value in his super-powered alter-ego. And this, to me, was one of Clark's more heroic and ironic facets. To have to hide the real him from the woman that he loves in order to serve the greater good, also in order to protect her. He must sacrifice a real connection. And with the retroactive inclusion of the multiverse, the Golden Age was explained as taking place on Earth 2, where Lois Lane and Clark Kent eventually married, However, this would not be considered true continuity. As the books entered the Silver Age, the dynamic was tweaked a little bit. Lois is a little less career-minded and a little bit more focused on domestic bliss. She spent her time trying to prove that Clark and Superman were the same person, or trying to trick Superman into marrying her. And conversely, Superman was forced to spend more time trying to throw Lois off of his trail, sometimes with mean tricks meant to teach her a lesson. The main wrench in the romantic gears during this period came from in the form of an adult Lana Lang. Lana had been Superboy's paramour as a young man, but in the adult universe, she kind of played Betty to Lois's Veronica with Superman in the middle. Of course, Lois won out. The standard of Lois pursuing Superman while dismissing Clark Kent would follow into other mediums as well. It would be prevalent in the New Adventures of Superman animated series of the 60s, and the Adventures of Superman series of the 50s, and even in Superman the movie in 1978. And this dynamic helped drive the Man of Steel in some ways. As Clark, he simply wanted her to notice all of his good qualities that didn't involve flying or lifting heavy objects. And as Superman, he saw a woman who was strong enough to put up with a man who flew off to fight villains and threats while holding her own. Lois saw in Superman the paragon of everything good in humanity. Uh, something beyond what Clark, an ordinary man, could offer. Not just in his strength and feats, but in his compassion and loyalty. 
and with Superman, she always knew he would make the right decision, but also that she would have to share him with humanity. Being strong-willed, Lois was able to accept this just to be a part of his life. Now, in 1985-86, everything would change. John Byrne came in and erased all prior continuity, so Lois and Clark started from scratch. Lois was once again abrasive and career-minded, and Clark was a little bit bolder, but this age proved to be pretty monumental for the relationship of Lois and Clark. Starting out as rivals at the Daily Planet, the co-workers maintained a primarily professional relationship, but eventually a respect formed and gave way to friendship. And while the beginning did follow the dynamic of Lois is more interested in Superman than in Clark, she did eventually notice Clark as a romantic interest. And both actually had their share of romantic interests before uh, coming together. Lois had Jose Delgado for a short time before he became gangbuster, or while he was gangbuster, while Clark briefly had a flirtatious relationship with Cat Grant that didn't really go anywhere. And Clark and Lois graduated to dating and eventually got engaged when Clark finally revealed his secret to Lois. Now, their new patrols were delayed on account of a slight case of death, a brief breakup, and an overseas assignment for Lois, and just general villainy overall. And when Lois and Clark did finally marry, it formed a solid bond and a place of comfort for Clark. The marriage was kept by the post-crisis, post-infinite crisis continuity, which to me is a good thing. It was easy to dismiss the engagement and eventual marriage as a publicity stunt or worse, something that would harm the storytelling. And in the marriage, Clark found a place beyond Smallville where he can just drop his guard and be himself. With Lois, he doesn't have to be mild-mannered or project his Superman persona. He can be just playing Clark from Smallville, and that works for her. And the love story between the two stands the test of time. I mean, really, they should be placed along uh, some of the more remembered love stories. Lancelot and Guinevere, Romeo and Juliet, Rhett and Scarlet, without the downer ending, I hope. It's a, it's a love story that spanned generations, mediums, and countless comic book pages. And along with the conflict with Lex Luthor, Superman's romance with Lois helps form a solid foundation for any major Superman retelling. To summarize it clearly and simply, without Lois, Superman just wouldn't be Superman. And this week, as I said, we're beginning our journey through all of the episodes of Superman the Animated Series, which premiered on September 6, 1996, uh, including, a th- including all three parts that we're going to be looking at through the next couple of episodes. There were 54 episodes altogether, which would, the run would actually end on February 12, 2000. So there we are. Ironically, here we are reviewing the beginning almost one day, or literally one day, 11 years later. And the first episode we're looking at is The Last Son of Krypton, Part 1, which was written by Alan Burnett and Paul Dini, directed by Dan Reba. The show's theme was by Shirley Walker, who did uh, some of the later series of Batman the Animated Series. But the music in the episode was provided by Lolita Ritmanis. Uh, the show, the episode was voice directed by Andrea Romano. Now, the stars of, the sh- of this episode, because Superman actually doesn't appear, spoiler, uh, Christopher McDonald plays Jor-El. You may remember him as Shooter McGavin in Happy Gilmore. Finola Hughes voices Lyra. Uh, she pl- actually played the White Queen, Emma Frost, in Generation X telemovie. 
Hopefully you don't remember that. Uh, Corey Burton is the voice of uh, Brainiac. He plays Count Dooku now on uh, Star Wars The Clone Wars. And Tony J, the late Tony J, um, is Solvan, who, uh, you, the one of the old, well, he's been in a ton of stuff, but the one that stands out for me would be he played Chairface Chippendale on The Tick. And Baby Kal-El in this episode is played by Jesse Bratton. And as far as the opening credits, this will be the only time I touch on them because they're the same throughout. Um, it's basically just a clip show. Uh, just uh, they ran out of time, and one of the openings, much like uh, Batman the Animated Series, was planned, but it ended up being really difficult and labor-intensive. So there was no real main title. And uh, the episode itself, Last Son of Krypton Part 1, begins with a lone figure in a hovering platform that moves across an Arctic wasteland. The platform enters an ice cave and docks on a platform overlooking a deep cavern where the man sends a subterranean probe down into that cavern. Now, as this is happening, as some of the data is starting to come back, the cave trembles, a little bit of gas comes out, as well as something else. And the computer works to calculate the probe's findings. And just as we're starting to get somewhere with that, a Kryptonian creature ensnares the man, who fights it off by severing a tendril, but the creature doesn't give up, gives chase as the man tries to escape up out of the cave and actually snares him as the hover thing, hovercraft is rising. And the man actually loses it by dragging it across some of the sharp um, ice of this, the cave's wall. So the man is safe, comes uh, flying back across the landscape, back to a giant ice ship. And there he is identified as Jor-El. And as he is starting to upload the data, Brainiac asks for, the, for what he has to be given to uh, the council. Now, in this version of the Superman mythology, Brainiac is a is an AI that stores all of Krypton's data, but he watches everything. He's kind of like Big Brother in 1984. Good afternoon, Jor-El. Jor-El reluctantly hands over the data to Brainiac to show the council. And after that little uh, exchange ends, Jor-El's infant son, Kal-El, enters the room, followed by his wife, Lyra. And the ship actually begins to take off. And Lara asks, where are we going now? And Jor says, we're going home. We're leaving the deep freeze. We've been here for months. And, uh, you know, I've gotten enough data. And Laura just, Lara just fears the result of the data, data he's seen. She talks about how beautiful Krypton is and what a shame. So back home, Jor-El uh, begins to go over the data with uh, not positive results. Meanwhile, in the other room, Lara is speaking to her father, Solvan, who fears that Jor-El's reputation is being tarnished by his activity. All I can tell you, Lara, is that if he persists in predicting the end of the world, it'll be the end, all right, of his political and professional career. But what if he's right, Father? Try convincing the Council. Jarrell enters the room and heatedly discusses that. Unless Brainiac agrees with the data, Jarrell's career could be over. And just as perfectly conveniently, a quake occurs and Lara rushes to protect Kal-El, who was playing with a small white puppy that you heard there in the background of that sound clip. Small white puppy being Crypto. Outside, uh, as the quake subsides, the Krypton, everybody in the area in Krypton struggles to recover. And uh, we move into another scene where Jor-El approaches the council, and as we've seen so many times before, he tries to explain that Krypton's core is undergoing a change and Krypton will explode. The planet's core is undergoing a mounting chain reaction that will eventually destroy Krypton. 
Lunacy. Ask Brainiac. Yes, Brainiac. He'll tell us. So the council refers to Brainiac, who does not support Jor-El's findings. Here we get some exposition that Brainiac is the computer meant to monitor all of Krypton and keep all of its data. Jor-El pleads to put everybody in the Phantom Zone with the criminals with the intent to free themselves later on another planet. And he's built a ship so that one man can stay behind and actually move to that planet and get everybody out. But the council does not agree. So back home later, Jor-El is stressing over the day and his son Cal takes his son Cal in his arms. Just ask him, how does it feel to not have a worry in the world? And Jor-El tells Lara he's going to go down to Brainiac Operations because he feels like the computer is lying. An argument ensues with Lara, and it really upsets up Kal-El, and she just tells him, yeah, go look, because your theories are more destructive than you can imagine. So Jor-El does, and deep in the, in the chasm that houses Brainiac, Jor-El begins talking to the computer who, insists, who basically insists that Jor-El's findings are human error. And Jor-El is blocked by Brainiac. He can't access it. Brainiac simply explains it as he's reallocating security files, clusters, and Jor-El believes Brainiac is hiding something. So he pursues it and uh, goes to the tries to access the controls, but finds something different. Brainiac is downloading himself to a satellite. You're downloading. You're transmitting your memory to a satellite. You're saving yourself. I must. After all, am I not the repository of all Kryptonian knowledge? Should I not be saved above all? If you stop me, there won't even be a memory of Krypton left. All its culture, its wonders and glory will be dust in the cosmos. Is that what you want? If the Council knew Krypton was doomed, they would frantically put me to work on calculating an evacuation plan. A futile gesture, given the time remaining. How much time is left? Hours. This world has seen its last sunrise. Having found out Brainiac's secret, uh, security is deployed by Brainiac, and they pursue Jarrell, who gets away on a hover bike in a really fast-paced action chase sequence. Uh, Brainiac actually tries to use deadly force, and the chase takes Jarrell all the way through the, the huge chasm where he, he fires upon a support beam, blocks the guards, and loses them. And Brainiac tells them the guards he's got it and deploys a la deploys a laser grid, only to find that the bike now has no pilot and Jarrell has gotten away. He's act they find him in level 5, and it, where his gun is shorting out trying to blast through a window, but he does manage to get out and slide down the slope side of the building, evading the patrols and getting back home. Where, at that moment, Lara and her father discuss uh, the findings, and looking at it, Sylvan actually believes. And just as he's accepting it, Jor-El stumbles in and tells them that the police are coming, and they, they say worst-case scenarios in place. So Jor-El, um, you know, or Sylvan tries to argue with Jor-El, but Jor-El just tells him to shut up. We have this under control. If he cares about his grandson, listen and follow along. So Lara goes into Kal-El's room and sedates him. And even though Sylvan does not agree with Jor-El's plan to send Kal-El to Earth as a lifeboat, even this last-ditch effort. And Lara actually brings the, the baby in and they prepare for a launch as the police begin to raid the El home. And Jor-El gets in a hover car and runs again, luring the police away from the house. But as they bring the craft down, we actually find that it was Sylvan piloting the craft. Meanwhile, Kal-El is strapped into the ship, and Lara gives a tearful, longing look. Jor says he could take her, send her with him, but she stays with her husband. And the ship is put into launch position. 
Meanwhile, with the guards trying to track down Jor-El, Brainiac says nothing matters and powers down after saying farewell, and his satellite leaves the orbit as tremors begin to shake. It doesn't matter anymore. Farewell, Krypton. And as the guards begin to say, oh no, another quake, Sylvan confirms exactly what the audience member is thinking. This is not just another quake. Not another one. No, the last one. And the ship is launched, and Jorel and Lara watch it fly into the night sky. They kiss tenderly as the quakes begin to tear Krypton apart. Structures fall, explosions rock. One after another, mushroom clouds begin to fly into the air as the ship begins to leave the atmosphere and is almost caught in the green cloud. But it makes it to open space as the planet explodes, sending some green meteors into the hyperspace with Kal-El, who slumbers peacefully for his journey to Earth. And that ends part one. So unlike Batman the Animated Series, this show actually began with the origin. Um, they wanted to go with the more of a structure of a Christopher Reeve movie. When, uh, as far as the changes, as far as, uh, it was Alan Burnett who decided to change Brainiac uh, to being from Krypton. And I believe he explained it as the Kryptonian version of the internet. And I think, to me, that's something that makes this mythology stand out, is that it is really interconnected. It's kind of like uh, in the Bat- in the original Batman movie, making the joke of the person that killed the person killed Bruce Wayne's parents. It makes it a little bit more personal. Now, one of the design things that I really, really like was that, you know, while Jor-El had definitely the, the face we're going to see on Superman down the road, including the, the cleft chin, Lara is actually the one that has the spit curl. So it's just a small pepper uh, seasoning in there that fact that she has that but it means a lot to me because the spit curl is something you recognize superman by and one major note is that the brainiac room that jor-el is standing in uh, is kind of painted with uh, sort of a magenta a very light purplish red and based on the uh, audio commentary for this episode it was actually inspired by jack kirby's art for the 2001 a space odyssey comic now, if you get to download the PDF, I have put that up for comparison, and I do see that. One of the major differences between this and the last incarnation, which would have been Ruby Spears, in terms of animation, is you actually see some blood in this episode. Jarrell is actually injured, which is something that really couldn't have happened ten years earlier. Uh, and you know, really, when you think about it, um, I know these the first this three part series aired as one showing. But more or less, once this hit the normal Saturday morning fair, you're looking at a full episode of Superman the Animated Series without Superman in it. Is that a bad thing? No. This is one of the better tellings of the origin. For one thing, um, they really wanted to make a Krypton that you liked to look at. It was both alien and familiar at the same time. Um, They talked about how, you know, the Superman the movie version of Krypton... The iciness, the coldness, it wasn't really a Krypton you would mourn. Where with this, they did amalgamate a lot of the Silver Age look with its own streamlined style. And created a Krypton where you were actually really kind of happy to see the place. Although I am sad that, you know, they did make a Crypto reference. And there's no indication that Crypto was ever put into the rocket. Which kind of uh, breaks my heart because I'm a huge Crypto fan. But overall, the episode actually had some action beats where they turned Jor-El into an action hero on his own. So you can see that some of that is in Clark's blood. And of course, I mentioned the design with Lara having the spit curl, 
while Jor-El had the face and sort of the body. Overall, this episode uh, just really reminded me why I love this cartoon. They took the time to really look at Krypton and give you a standalone idea of what life was kind of like in that world. If I had any downside, it's the Gumby-type outfits that the Council wears in this episode. They have these sharp shoulders, they're very green, and it just, I mean, it looks like they're Gumby. So overall, where does this rank? Well, Superman wasn't in it, so it wasn't as traditional a Superman story, but it remains one of my favorite versions of the origin. So I'm going to go ahead and yeah, use the same scale I do with comic books and give this uh, 3.5 stars out of 5. It was definitely above average, but kind of uh, kind of wanted to see a little bit of Superman in there. And we definitely end on a kind of a downer note with the planet exploding, and the goodbye was very tender. So the emotions were real. Solvan's sacrifice was phenomenal. And I don't think we've really seen those characters in this much detail since Alan Moore wrote what for The Man Who Has Everything, which was also adapted by Justice League Unlimited into a phenomenal episode. But that's the that wraps up our first episode of Superman the Animated Series. So, of course, next week uh, we'll continue Clark's journey to Smallville in animated form with The Last Son of Krypton Part 2. As I mentioned last week, we're going to begin looking at character profiles in, in the Superman universe, mostly his supporting cast. And I think this is important to building, you know, a, a more complete podcast to cover all the eras. While our comic book reviews are focused primarily on everything 2006 to, to uh, the current, the look at the characters will actually include all of the eras, golden, silver, modern, gold, uh, bronze age, just kind of a general overview of who they are. And this week we're going to start out with Perry White. And, uh, you know, he know him as the cigar-chomping editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet. Well, Perry actually appeared first on the Adventures of Superman radio show in 1940, before being put in the comic continuity with Superman number 7. However, he was not actually named until Superman number 10, which would have been right around the end of 1940 and the beginning of 1941. Now, when Action Comics began, Clark Kent and Lois Lane worked for the Daily Star under George Taylor. At the time of White's debut, this inconsistency was ignored. Clark left the star to cover a story for Taylor, returned to submit the story to the Daily Planet under Perry White, and nobody in the story noticed a thing. Now, in the Silver Age, Perry started out as a freelance reporter, working for papers in Chicago and Gotham, before settling at the Daily Planet and winning a Pulitzer for revealing Superboy's alien heritage. And he later rose to more prominence when he revealed that Superboy had become Superman and was working in Metropolis instead of Smallville, which Clark had tried to keep secret in order to distinguish Superman and Clark as two separate individuals showing up in Metropolis at two separate times. Following Crisis on Infinite Earths, Perry got a 20th century upgrade complete with a more extensive backstory. Under John Byrne, Perry actually grew up in the suicide slum district of Metropolis, without a father uh, who had gone overseas to fight in the military. Now Perry would actually go to school with Lex Luthor, and the two were actually childhood friends. Luther would grow to hate Perry White, blaming him for Lex's absence 
the night Luther's father killed his sister, Lena Luthor. Perry had actually convinced Lex to go to a local football game that night. In the burn era, Perry started out as a copy boy at the Daily Planet and worked his way up to reporter. While working as a reporter, Perry was covering a plot by the Aryan Brotherhood to create a race of supermen by experimenting on African Americans. While on the story, Perry met and befriended Franklin Stern, who would later buy the Daily Planet as a favor to Perry. And while Perry was a reporter, and around this time Lex actually owned the, owned the Daily Planet, but he sold it wanting to concentrate on technologies like television and computers. He offered Perry the chance to be a part of Luther's network, WLEX, but Perry remained at the planet and found an investor in David Ling who would save the paper, but only on the condition that Perry become editor-in-chief. Perry always blamed Lex for taking him out of the reporter role, while Lex always blamed Perry for distracting him the night his sister died. Perry's first major move as editor-in-chief was to hire a girl he had met and been impressed by when she was only 15, Lois Lane. With the hard-nosed reporter in place, the paper's circulation grew, and more so when Clark Kent stepped on the scene and dropped the first major news story of Superman in Perry's lap. Perry married Alice Spencer and was feared dead in an overseas war. During this time, Luther seduced and impregnated Alice, who was surprised to see Perry return alive. Awkward. Alice gave birth to a baby boy named Jerry White and hid from Perry the fact that their son's biological father was Luthor. And Jerry would have a troubled life and would be killed by a gunshot wound from intergang, leading Alice to reveal Jerry's true father to Perry. Perry took a leave of absence to mourn and kind of repair his marriage. And later he and Alice would adopt Keith Parks, an African-American boy who would, had been a mainstay in the Superman books. Perry successfully fought lung cancer in the 90s, undergoing chemotherapy and leaving Clark Kent in charge of the Daily Planet. Once the cancer was in remission, Perry returned just in time for Franklin Stern to sell the Daily Planet to Lex Luthor, who dismantled the paper, firing everybody but Lois and Jimmy. Lois struck a deal with Luthor and Lex sold the paper to Bruce Wayne for a single dollar, putting Perry back in charge. In the post-Infinite Crisis New Earth era, much of Perry's backstory is yet to be explored fully. We know that the bitterness between Luther and Perry actually stems from the planet running an expose on Lex's corrupt business practices. But here we see uh, Luther as a contemporary of Clark Kent rather than Perry White. White has appeared in multiple adaptations of Superman. In the Kirk Allen serials of the 40s and 50s, Pierre Watkin played Perry. John Hamilton was Perry on the Adventures of Superman television series. Jackie Cooper was Perry in the Christopher Reeve films. And the amazing Lane Smith was Perry on Lois and Clark. While Michael McKeon played a younger Perry on Smallville, and Frank Langella took his turn behind the desk in Superman Returns. Overall, Perry has been a father figure of sorts to Clark, Lois, and Jimmy. He's the paragon of ethical, hard-nosed journalism. He may be hard to work for, but he backs his reporters when they're exposing villainy. And in that, he helps Superman fight for truth, justice, and the American way. We're sitting on top of the story of the century here. So what happened in the world of Superman this week? Well, one big story is Michael Rosenbaum has confirmed. Absolutely, he is coming back for the Smallville finale, which will air May 13th, 2011. Now, uh, I mean, earlier in the week, it had been pretty much, no, he's not coming back, we're done. But Friday night, he did simply, he came out and said, yes, I'm going to do it. And according to his, his press release, he stated, I'm simply doing it for all the fans out there who made Smallville the great success it is. 
I appreciate all of their passion, their relentlessness, and even their threats. Kind of guilty of that. Sorry, I won't lie. Uh, but you know what? Michael Rosenbaum has, has manned up. So I'm going to say this. You know what? He's doing it for us. Whatever he does next, even if it's a horrible direct-to-DVD Sorority Boys 2, I think we need to support that. So bravo, Michael Rosenbaum. I think without him in that episode, there would have been a void. Definitely a void. Now, uh, as far as that Smallville finale, it was announced this week that Greg Beeman will actually be directing that episode. Now, he's done some of the biggest uh, episodes you can think of. Um, Legacy, where Christopher Reeve uh, appeared the second time. He did uh, Crusade, and he did last year's finale. So I'm actually pretty good, pretty happy with that. We got a top-notch Smallville director on that finale. Remember, May 13th, two-hour finale of Smallville after ten years. Now, over on the movie side, Zack Snyder actually talked about his upcoming movie and about his thoughts on The Man of Steel. And he really doesn't give a lot of details, but he actually said, uh, question, you know, what can you do with the Superman in a modern world? And, uh, you know, his idea, he thinks that Chris and David, Christopher Nolan and David Goyer, they created exactly what was needed, what he's working on now. And uh, basically his only real statement of anything revealing was, uh, I, I quote, I can't really talk about that without being kind of specific, but I can say I think Superman needs to be physical. And all together now just say, duh, that was what we've been saying. It's been missing. It was missing from Superman Returns. The latest casting rumor, however, uh, has definitely got some heads turning. Apparently, Lindsay Lohan has is up for a role in the Superman reboot. Here's the deal. I'll be honest with you. I'm not. This isn't even an opinion. I'm just going to lay some logical facts on you. It won't happen. A. Uh, Warner Brothers is a major studio, and most major studios don't want to work with Lohan. She's bad press. She's not reliable. So if they're going to put that on there, their money down on there, it's probably not going to be on her, especially with something this big, with a budget this size. So Lindsay, uh, probably not going to happen. Plus, let's be realistic. This week, she just came out that you know she is being prosecuted for stealing a diamond necklace. And I know they say no press is bad press, but uh, even if she's playing a villain, that's just going to drag the movie down. And uh, also, I want to direct your attention to uh, Rob Pratt. Dot com. That's R-O-B-B-P-R-A-T-T dot com. Rob Pratt was a animator with Disney, and he's made a short film called Superman Classic, which you can also find over at supermanforever.com. I did post it. And this combines a lot of the Fleischer material with some later versions of Superman for an awesome animated effect. Really, it was a combination of hand-drawn animation, digital backgrounds, and colors. It is mind-blowing. Now, John Hames Newton, who was Superboy in the first season of The Adventures of Superboy, is the voice of Superman. His wife actually voices Lois Lane. I cannot recommend this highly enough. And uh, you can also see that over at supermansupersite.com. And I do want to thank Neil Cole for, uh, you know, giving me thanks. I, I appreciate Neil Cole. I love supermansupersite.com. I've been a fan of it for years. So to see my name appear on there was a real honor. As far as the books you're going to see on stands this week which is uh, February 16th, 2011, this Wednesday. Supergirl number 61 will be hitting, written by James P.D., with art by Bernard Chang, and covered by Amy Reader and Richard Friend, which uh, does not match up with the Nick Spencer, but we already knew that he was leaving the book, unfortunately. So that'll, of course, be 32 pages for 2 dollars 
Over in Superman Batman number 81, Cullen Bunn takes over writing duties with art by Chris Cross and Mark Deering. And that'll be Sorcerer Kings part 1 of 4, also 32 pages, 2.99. And um, DC Universe Online Legends number 2, based on the massively multiplayer online role-playing game, will be coming out. This is issue number 2 of 26, which does feature Superman in it. So take a look at that if you like the game. Also, two ninety nine because they draw the line at two ninety nine. And in terms of adaptations, Young Justice number one will be appearing, so you can get your fix of Connor Kent over there. And if you haven't seen this cartoon, it is phenomenal. And I don't get a chance to talk about it very much on the show here. Uh, we may have to rectify that shortly with a marathon or maybe just a special episode. But um, really great DC adaptation. And Connor Kent features pretty heavily in that, and he'll feature pretty heavily in the comic book adaptation written by Art Balthazar and Franco, with art by Mike Norton, two ninety nine American. And in terms of trade, Superman Batman Torment will be releasing, which collects Superman Batman number thirty seven through forty two, which was written by Alan Burnett, um, who did uh, Superman Batman Adventures, the animated series we were talking about, and Batman Beyond, the animated series. And uh, it'll also be written by Dustin Gein and Derek Fridoffs. So that will be some of the art. That's 160 pages um, for $14.99. Not a bad trade, but not necessarily one that's phenomenal. Anyway, we'll get to that storyline sooner or later. So those are the books that'll be coming out on stands this Wednesday, February 16th, 2010. 2011. Perhaps I should get my years right. What do you think? So let's go ahead and do our comic reviews. Uh, kicking off January 2007 cover dates will be Action Comics number 845, which is Last Sun Part 2. Written by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner. Penciled and inked by Adam Kubert. Kubert. Colored by Dave Stewart. Lettered by Rob Lay. Edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro. Now we're going to be seeing a lot of Dave Stewart this week, so prepare. Now this issue begins, as the last one did, inside the Fortress of Solitude, with Superman and the young Kryptonian boy consulting with Jor-El, who does not know who the boy is. Superman decides that the history lesson is over and takes the boy flying. With that, we find, our, find ourselves on the Kent farm in Smallville. Ma and Pa are surprised that Clark attacked a military convoy to get the boy, and Pa insists that they are too old to raise another kid, which will become ironic later down the road. And Clark suggests adopting the boy to Lois, who tells Clark that they weren't put here to be good parents. Lois adds that the kid's picture is all over the news, and what does Clark expect to do? Put a pair of glasses on him? Lois insists that they cannot be this boy's mother and father, and the boy, in plain English, asks why. Before this can sink in, a news report comes across the TV talking about how Sarge Steele will not rest until they find the most important boy on the planet. Lois gives Clark a knowing look. With that, we do a check-in with Lex Luthor, who's working on the parasite in the in a laboratory, and telling him that if he squirms, it will affect his metamorphosis. Lex observes Superman contacting Sarge Still over a wiretap secure channel, and Superman tells Steel he has the boy and wants to talk. Lex goes to a holding cell in the lab, where he tells an off-panel figure who is watching multiple televisions uh, that it's time to retrieve the Superboy. And Superman brings the boy out in the open to a media circus, just to make sure the public has, public has full knowledge of where the boy will be kept. 
Just as Superman is trying to tell the boy that Lois does like him and everything is going to be all right, something slams straight down into him from the sky, implanting the Man of Steel deep into the pavement and the ground below. From the hole formed, Bizarro rises and spots that what he thinks is his prey. Turns out the boy Bizarro grabs is not the Kryptonian kid, but a normal boy whose arm snaps under Bizarro's grip. Superman rises from the underground and manages to catch the human boy after Bizarro discards him in midair. Superman tackles Bizarro and they land on a, in the top story of a bus depot. Bizarro retaliates by throwing an empty school bus at the Man of Steel, and the bus continues through the wall and plummets toward our Kryptonian child, landing squarely on top of him, much to the horror of Lois Lane. As Bizarro and Superman continue to fight, Lois crawls into the mangled bus to see a terrified Kryptonian boy unharmed. Bizarro, now buried in city buses, bursts out, and this sends a bus high into the air, knocking down the Daily Planet globe. As Lois helps the boy out of the wreckage, both look up to see the globe plummeting towards them, and effortlessly, the Kryptonian boy catches the globe only a little way above the pavement. Superman finishes off Bizarro and floats down to the ground to find Lois and the boy safe amid the disaster, with Jimmy, who has lost his camera. And Lois states that she has had a change of heart and wants to try and raise the boy. Walking in the park a little bit later with uh, the Kryptonian boy in spectacles, Lois uh, suggests a name for him. Christopher. Clark and the newly christened Christopher approve. Elsewhere in the Fortress of Solitude, Chris Kent's ship is sending out a signal which draws three more ships from near the moon, kind of the same style as his, the wrapped baked potato. The ships crash land near the fortress, and Christopher Kent's biological parents step out, and they are General Zod and Ursa with their companion, Nan. And we get a great cliffhanger to end the issue on. And I didn't mention the cover to last week's issue of Action Comics, and I regret that. For some of his shortcomings, Kubert does deliver some great art. Action 45 has a stellar cover featuring an enraged Bizarro snapping chains with a light brown hue, almost like a pale grayish brown. Now, these covers were striking at the time, and they remain so today. Now, the scene inside the fortress on pages 1 and 2 really just serve the point of displaying that the ship is in the fortress, which, of course, becomes important later. Page 4, where the story picks up at the Kent farm, really has some good nuances. The bats flying over the house, for one. Clark's oafish lean, showing he's off guard, is a nice touch. And Chris Kent picking up a dictionary is subtle, but a good way to move the story along. That way he learns English in, I believe, under five minutes, and uh, we don't waste a lot of time trying to understand the boy. Page six continues this with Chris floating in the air slightly aloof, just like a real kid. Cooper's body language is shining through, and the oak hue to the colors by Dave Stewart has been, who's been pulling double duty on his, has been phenomenal. He's been doing this and Superman. We're going to see him later on in Superman Confidential. The thing is, his hues and styles change between Pacheco and Kubert expertly, as well as with Tim Sale later on. Another example would be page seven, and uh, the lightly olive-hued. Uh, Slate color, slate color on Bizarro Cell. It's just expert. Overall, Kubert's art is much more even this issue than last. Maybe he was even getting more comfortable, or maybe he just had a little bit more time on this issue, maybe a little bit more lead time. And there are instances where the layouts are hard to follow, but only mildly. I've seen much, much worse. 
When his Bizarro gets a full appearance on page 12, you see the line work that worked against Kubert's Superman really shine and highlight his Bizarro. Kubert's Bizarro conveys the simple innocence of the Silver Age with a sharpened rage of a monster. It isn't a complete reboot, but it does make for a nice tweak to the first New Earth appearance of Bizarro. When he accidentally breaks the child's arm on page 13, it really kind of shows the real danger of Bizarro, where the real villainy lies. Without the rationality that anchors Superman in the control, even the slightest, slightest gestures can maim or kill. And I find myself wondering about the dog that's tied to the hydrant on page 16. Poor thing is just minding its own business and then launched into the air. I'm sure it's fine, but it's still, I kind of thought about it. Now, I like attention to detail. Like in the first X-Men movie, did you know the address for the X-Mansion was actually correct from the comics? Now, when Bizarro hits Superman with a bus on page 17, look closely, the engine block is visible and shoved into the bus just like a real head-on accident. And when we see the bus land on the steps of the Daily Planet, the details remain exactly the same. It's that consistency that really helps deliver this issue. Now, page 22 may be might be my favorite page in any Superman book for the last few years. The image of a terrified Chris Kent really punches at your heart, and Lois processing this really, it's really not only moving, but it grounds her decision to try and raise the boy so it didn't come out of nowhere. You see that there really is that panic and fear and caring. However, the Daily Planet Globe gets knocked off. Again. You would think in a city that houses Superman and gets attacked like every other week by you know aliens or giant robots, perhaps a giant removable globe was not the best design choice. Wouldn't the city have actually cited them several times for this? I'm not sure. I know the real world rules don't exactly apply to it, and we did get a nice, you know, really good shot of Chris hoisting the globe into the air on page 25. As much as I like epic shots, I like um, thoughtful storytelling just as much. Now, page 26 has another great panel with Superman looking down on Lois cradling Chris. It's subtle, and it's not in the face, but the way his shoulders stoop a little. It shows this great relief, and we really see um, not only the image of this family forming, but the fact that he just really does care about not only Lois, but the boy. And speaking of the boy, on page 27, he finally gets a name, Christopher Obviously, a reference to Christopher Reeve, and I approve. And this kind of comes back to the question I posed last week about how much should the presentation of Superman and other media influence the book. This is a good example in the positive and the negative. It's positive because the comics finally have a way to honor Reeve. The negative, considering that Superman Returns was hitting DVD shelves the month that this book came out, it begged the question, is this how they're going to shoehorn the kid from Superman Returns into continuity? Yes, we will get an answer to this, but not right now. And the revelation at the end of the issue that the kid that we and Superman have actually grown to care about over two issues is the son of Ur Zod and Ursa? That's just a kick in the teeth. A good one, don't get me wrong, but a kick in the teeth. It's, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. Now, I do want to note that this marks Zod and Ursa's first appearance in the New Earth era along with Nan. So, prepare to get the, to know these three pretty well. And though it is uh, good to see more traditional Zod and crew after having the Russian scientists and the Kryptonian version in For Tomorrow, it's, it's just nice to have a proper version of the villain. 
So a lot of action in the issue, some really emotional moments. All in all, the art was even and sharp throughout the book with no glaring weak spots. And this remains an enjoyable issue. And I give it three and a half S shields out of five. Uh, definitely above average. And let's go ahead and move on to Superman number 658. Written by Kurt Busiek. Penciled by Carlos Pacheco. Inked by Jesus Marino. Colored by Dave Stewart. Lettered by Comicraft. Edited by Matt Adelson and Nachi Castro. Now this cheerful little number continues the Camelot Fall storyline. It opens up to the action on August 30th, 2014, as Donna Troy's Wonder Woman fights off ghost wolves, Kyber's cybernetic henchmen outside of Fourth Luthor. The ragtag army begins to fall as Flash is overtaken, and Helen Jordan does her best to defend the fort, but inside Luthor himself, James Olsen, and Parasite prepare to join the battle. Lois offers to suit up into one of Luthor's power suits, but it is, it is decided for her that she must remain behind and chronicle the events. Before leaving, Parasite asks Lois to call him Clark. As his power is running out, and with what is left of Superman's memories and feelings draining with it, Lois tells Parasite that he is not Clark, and to let go and siphon off somebody else, just to survive. As the battle rages on outside, Sirocco decides to halt his healing and stand up to Kyber. Sirocco explains that centuries ago, Kyber's humanity was placed in him and grants him eternal life. So Sirocco basically carries the guilt and the conscience of Kyber's. Uh, without that, Kyber's able to do whatever evil he can with no emotional repercussions. Outside, the parasite falls, and with him, the last of Clark's memories. He calls out that he loves Lois, and Lois finally says, Goodbye, Clark. Luther begins pulling out all of the stops, including cybernetic hounds and protoplasmic warriors, when Kyber himself shows up. Nobody is even able to touch Kyber as he just tears up the battlefield in seconds, but then somebody else shows up. Superman himself. Kyber is caught by surprise, having assumed, just like everyone else, that Superman was dead. Superman flies Kyber above the cloud cover and explains that he was nearly dead in the volcanic core of the Earth, but he's able to absorb enough strength from the rock to break free. In the sunlight, Superman lays into Kyber, but stops short of the killing blow, which proves to be his undoing, as it is just the moment Kyber needs, and his nanovirus manages to finish off a weakened Man of Steel, who dies in Kyber's clutch. While Superman wouldn't kill, Sirocco would, and does, ramming a spear right through the villain's chest. Kyber's ghost wolves fall apart, and Sirocco dies with Kyber, although Sirocco has a smile on his face. Good has won the day. Until the villains, uh, the world over, begin to fight over the power vacuum left by Kyber's death. The world is again at war and innocents keep falling. By May of 2017, the fighting is still raging on, and Lex Luthor finally falls and is himself killed. Lois and Jimmy bury Lex next to Superman, and the years pass with Lois getting older. The Flash passes on, Helen Jordan leaves Earth with her Green Lantern ring to seek help, and Wonder Woman has vanished. By 2045, Lois has died, buried with Superman and Lex, as Jimmy takes over the journals. With his last few entries in 2056, Jimmy believes he may be the last man on Earth, and finishes up the journals, staying to cover the story until the end, just like Perry would have wanted. With that cheerful moment, we return to the present-day Metropolis, with Arion and Superman discussing the vision. 
Arianna explains that the cycle that, you know, civilization rises and falls only to rise again. Superman insists he must find Kyber and prevent this future from happening, but Arianna explains that by interfering, Superman will only make the darkness stronger. And for mankind to live, Superman must let civilization fall. And with that, we end book one of Camelot Falls. So let's start out with the obvious. This issue is a downer. There are some good points to the issue, don't get me wrong. Donna Troy is rocking on page one, laying a beat down on some of her enemies. And hey, on page three, Mad-Eye returns. Uh, he's a winner. Uh, he's basically a Harry Potter ripoff. And I know he only appears in the background of these two issues, but he looks like Hagrid combined with Mad-Eye Moody. And, you know, looking at the flash in that panel, that is Barry. So would 657, last issue, would that be the first New Earth appearance of Barry? I don't know. You tell me. I'm saying yes. On page six, the dialogue between Parasite and Lois is heartbreaking, and I wish there was more to this element of the story. And page nine, Sirocco being the container for Kyber's human emotions was another thing that could have really been explored, though. Uh, despite the, the costume being kind of a bit of a saber-tooth ripoff, the backstory looks more interesting than a simple illusion really does any justice to. And the death of Parasite, um, page 10, was far more moving than I would have expected. But his death, based on being unwilling to relinquish what he had left of Superman, turns a little trite with Lois finally calling him Clark. And page 11 and 12 is the ad for the Ultimate Superman DVD collection. I went out and bought this. Actually, funny story. I was deathly sick on that day, November. It would have been the day after it came out, so that would have been November 29th. And uh, my wife had given me the okay to go ahead and go pick it up as my Christmas present. So deathly ill, I decide to start at Walmart, which is sold out of them. Go to Best Buy, sold out of them. I am sweating profusely from a fever and really not happy. And uh, just as I was getting ready to give up after several different stops at Circuit City and anywhere I could think of, I was on my way home when somebody called and said, yeah, I just saw it at a local place here. And uh, I ran back in and got it, and it really helped me make make me feel better. So uh, it, despite the fact that I kind of cursed a little at uh, somebody I used to know just out of the illness, uh, it was uh, ended up being a pretty good day just being sick, watching a lot of the extras, finally seeing the Richard Donner cut. Anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. Uh, Superman is back on page 18, but the odd coloring makes him look more like Bizarro, which doesn't, it does add an interesting slant to the scene, but I think the effect was supposed to be covered in soot, uh, kind of having absorbed some of that magma at the core of the earth. Now this is actually in stark contrast to the color that pops on page 19. Until this scene, uh, Dave Stewart's stellar colors weren't really on par, at least I didn't think, but I realized they were muted because of the cloud cover, the nuclear winter, and suddenly, bam, we're in. We're above the cloud cover, and it's bright, and the effect is actually a little blinding, just like real sunlight, so bravo. And I think Superman's refusal to kill Kyber on page 20 and 21, I mean, even with the fate of the world at stake, Superman just won't cross that line. But in this instance, would it have been a bad thing to make this exception? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I'd hate to see Superman kill. I think that would dishearten me. But at the same time, there's a time and a place. I mean, look what he did with the Kryptonian villains back in the Burn era. It was a have-to thing, and I think this may have been another situation that was very comparable. 
Now, Sirocco finishes the job on page 24 and 25 and dies with a smile on his face, having finally released himself from his own from his prison. I really would like maybe even a miniseries or something on the story between Sirocco and Kyber. I know we get a little bit more later down the road, but at the same time, man, you don't you just it, it's right on the surface. Now, watching the progression for the for the on pages 28 and 29 as time passes into the far future, that's where the book really gets depressing. Although I like wearing Lois wearing her husband's cape as a scarf and keeping him near and I, I like the one-armed Jimmy holding down the fort at the end of the world. Jimmy Olson, last boy on earth. Who would have thought? So let's look at this story. Really, as much as I enjoyed the issue, it was what we didn't see that was the most compelling and intriguing. Kind of like I mentioned the Sirocco and Kyber dynamic and the Parasite's condition. There's a lot of backstory here. And truthfully, I would really have loved to have seen more. And Arion's point that Superman is helping the world is actually hurting it. It's interesting. It's always nice to, you know, kind of reflect upon Superman. I like you know, the philosophy behind, is he helping or hurting the world? But it's it's been done before when, you know, the Guardians even called him out on it. As far as the art, Pacheco's smoothness kind of gives way to some nice jagged rough moments, which fits the mood of the story. I mean, he's handling a lot of characters here. All of them manage to come across distinctive and true to their design. And of course, Dave Stewart's colors, they just stand out again. This guy's all over the place, and he changes with each and every application. The muted tones of a future cloud cover due to nuclear winter versus the brighter, blinding tones above the cover, they have that sharp contrast that just blew me away. So overall, I really wanted to see more of this future. Felt like we barely scratched the surface. However, I was really intrigued by what I did see. And I really ended up, at the end of the issue, wanting more. So I'm going to give this 3.5 stars out of 5. It's above average, but I really would like more of the backstory. And speaking of wanting more, if you look at the end of this issue, the solicitation for next month, it shows a crypto story. I can't tell you how excited I can I, I, I am about that. Because I loves me some crypto. I just can't wait. But that's not going to happen. Now this is the moment I've been telling you about. This is the turning point. When the books take an odd turn as far as the scheduling and shipping. So for those of you reading along, disregard that solicit. Do not look forward to that. Prepare for something entirely different when we cover uh, Superman 659 next week. So let's forge right ahead with Superman Batman number 32. Written by Mark Verheiden, penciled by Matthew Clark and Ron Randall, inked by Andy Lanning and Don Hillsman, colored by Guy Major, lettered by Rob Lay, cover was done by Phil Jimenez, and also Andy Lanning and Moose Bowman. Some of the greatest names are just lined up in this issue. The issue was edited by Eddie Berganza and Adam Schlagman. And this is The Enemies Among Us, Part 5 of 6. And after a brief flashback of Alfred explaining that Batman sees all enemies as the man who killed his parents and swore never to feel as helpless as he did that night again, we catch up right where we left off with Batman facing Superman and Supergirl and... Ultra, the multi-alien, controlled by the alien force from above that's communicating with all aliens on Earth. While well, Batman came prepared and pulls a chunk of kryptonite out of his utility belt, allowing him to get away and rescue Plastic Man, who is still recovering from the torture Lex Luthor put him through last issue. And Plastic Man takes off, not in any condition to take on possessed Kryptonians. 
And Superman manages to use the LexCorp building's natural defenses to encase the kryptonite in lead. Soups goes tearing through the building looking for Batman. And when he finds the Dark Knight, he finds that Batman has voluntarily taken the Black Rock in and become possessed by it, causing Batman to reject humanity, and Batman takes off for Gotham. Supergirl begins to have a mental breakdown, fighting off the alien message, and kind of takes herself out of the fray, flying into the solitude of space. Superman flies home to Metropolis, where a heart-to-heart with Lois snaps him back to himself, and with his personality restored, Supes goes to save his friend Batman. Before he gets too far, he has a brief run-in with Lobo, who says that Lobo was rejected by the alien force, but won't help stave off the oncoming attack. When Lois returns to the Daily Planet newsroom, uh, Jimmy Olsen shows her that the aliens have begun to gather, including Martian Manhunter, Hawkman, and Ultra the Multi-Alien, right around Metropolis. At Wayne Manor in Gotham, Batman is tearing up the Batcave and attacks Superman when he arrives, powered by the Black Alien life form, or ALF. As Superman and Batman battle in Gotham, Black Rock shards fall, like rain over Metropolis, as the aliens look to the sky. Jimmy and Lois reach the street, and Jimmy picks up one of the Black Rocks, and the alien symbiote takes him over as a giant spaceship appears in the sky over Metropolis. So overall, I'm not too thrilled about this issue, I'm not going to lie. As far as the art goes, I can tell when Matthew Clark draws versus Ron Randall. Randall's art is actually pretty crisp, kind of like Andy Kubert's run on Grant Morrison was going on at the time, over in Grant Morrison's run on Batman. And Clark's, uh, Matthew Clark's Superman looks a little Neanderthal. His faces look very similar, simian, pardon me, and his bodies are always a little bit out of proportion. It just uh, wasn't a good effect, to be honest, overall. As far as the story, there wasn't much of one in this issue. I wish Batman hadn't used Kryptonite and relied on his wits instead. Kryptonite can be a really nice story point, or it can just be a point of laziness. Here, it would be the point of laziness. Oh, let's stave him off with some Kryptonite. But I did like Lois breaking Clark out of the alien head game. That was good, because that should happen. Lois is Clark's other half, and really, is uh, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, she's his... Uh, kind of his sounding board, his human side. So that makes perfect sense that she would bring him back. And the switch of a possessed Superman to now a possessed Batman just reeks of the Rush Hour movies, where, uh, you know, the first one, Jackie Chan's in a strange environment, and the second one, now uh, Chris Tucker has gone to Japan and he's out of his element. We get it. It's just another lazy move. And Lobo's appearance didn't advance the story, but I'll tell you what, it was good for a laugh. The idea that Lobo is sort of that character that heaven would reject and hell wouldn't want just fits perfectly. That's kind of one of the things I like about the main man, is that he's, uh, you know, not exactly a likable character, ironically. So overall, I don't have a ton of individual notes on this issue. It just didn't wow me enough, honestly. It just wasn't thrilling. It didn't leave a great impression for me. There were some good Clark Lois moments. And of course, the impending climax actually left me you know, ready for the next issue, which is what a comic should do. But basically, it's just a pedestrian issue of a rehashed X-Files or, or Invasion of the Body Snatchers plot. So I'm going to give this issue, Superman Batman number 32, 2.5 S-Shields out of 5. Definitely below average. And our final stop this week brings a new book into the fray. 
Superman Confidential, which was intended to tell stories, uh, supposedly in continuity stories, based on Superman's early years or throughout, you know, in between the cracks. Uh, this book will end up lasting 14 issues, so we've got 14 episodes to spend time with it. And it really kicked off with just an amazing creative team, a really good concept. And uh, premiered after the Batman Confidential book with the same concept, just didn't obviously last as long. And I've never, I've never been sure why. It was actually a fun book. I really enjoyed it. So let's begin with Superman Confidential Part 1, or Number 1, which is Kryptonite Part 1, which is written by the great Darwin Cook, drawn by the amazing Tim Sale, colored by, uh, wait for it, Dave Stewart, lettered by Richard Starkings, and edited by Mark Chiarello and Tom Palmer Jr., which kind of surprises me, because if it was a Superman family book, wouldn't Matt Idelson be overlooking this? I'm not sure exactly what the, the editorial viewpoint was on this book, if it was just not officially part of the canon or not. But uh, the issue begins with a familiar scene of Kal-El's rocket leaving Krypton. But this time it shows it accompanied by a large meteorite who is actually narrating the scene. And the narration actually talks about being bonded to the baby just to observe and record. Now the ship and the meteorite arrive at Earth, and of course Kal-El's ship, Kal ship lands in Kansas, while the meteor holding our unseen narrator lands in Tibet and is taken into their temple by monks. So we speed ahead to Metropolis where the narration changes and the Royal Flush Gang is actually causing havoc. Ace flings a liquid nitrogen truck into the air and Superman arrives to catch it. And Superman's inner monologue tells us that he has been Superman for about two months, which should put us pretty close to Secret Origin. I'd say actually, depending on how much time, I, it's a little bit indecipherable how much time passed, but it may be about a month and a half after Secret Origin, theoretically. And at this point, he's still plagued with some self-doubt. Even though he appears to be invulnerable, he wonders internally what extent that applies to. What can kill him? And Superman lifts the tanker truck higher into the air as the Royal Flush Gang follow, and King hits him with a bolt, which throws Superman off balance. Jack follows up by throwing charged-up knives at the tank, puncturing the tanker truck and sending Superman and nitroglycerin flying into the ground. And Superman, Superman falls encased in ice and steel. He wonders if, hey, this might kill me. But a cast in ice, Superman plummets right on top of Ace, crushing the android. Superman doesn't even feel it. Now we have a brief interlude with Lois and Superman sharing some time on the Eiffel Tower, lit by candlelight and stars. But that's short-lived, as back in Metropolis, Perry White asks Clark Kent, Jimmy Olsen, and Lois Lane to the roof of the Daily Planet. Perry has suspicions about Anthony Gallo, the owner of the Utopia Casino. And Perry wants to dig into Gallo's life and prove he has a criminal empire that's funding this, imp this casino. Perry adds that he chose Lane, Kent, and Olsen because they can't be bought. And that's just another example of Perry backing his reporters and knowing what's what. So Jimmy and Clark set up surveillance in a rundown printing company while Lois begins digging into Gallo, telling co-workers that it is a fluff piece on him because they don't want anybody besides that core group knowing what's actually going on because you don't know who you can trust. Well, apparently Perry does. While Clark and Jimmy wait, Jimmy points out that Clark has been watching coverage of a volcano eruption. Yes, that's a plot point. As the issue ends, Lois manages to get the elusive Gallo on the phone line. 
So let's start with the cover. The green definitely catches the eye. It's a little bit of an eyesore, but at the same time, it does what it's supposed to do and gets your attention. And Superman as a figure is actually in the shadow, while his symbol is in these primary colors. Nice looking cover, definitely does what it needs to do, gets your attention, makes you want to buy the book. So let's talk about the art. I don't really have a lot of page by page here because it goes by pretty quick. But overall, uh, Tim Sale's art is immediately recognizable. Uh, If you remember Superman for all seasons, definitely a distinctive look. And Darwin Cook, he definitely has a, a distinctive style of his own. And with this arc, you actually see Tim Sale move away from the depiction he used in Superman for all seasons and slim down Superman, giving him a sleeker, more defined look. And his character work is sharp here. Lois looks shapely and spunky spunky all at once. Jimmy's character really benefits from the floppy hat he wears and the goofy grin. And, uh, you know, Tim Sale's transitions overall are great, even if some of them layouts were pretty plain. The Eiffel Tower scene really stands out, especially accented by Dave Stewart's colors. It manages to be intimate, yet kind of epic at the same moment. Because nothing can be just normal in Superman and Lois' relationship. Looking at the books, uh, you know, Stewart has a range from the earth tones of Superman to the faux animated look we see here. I mean, the guy is versatile, and I'm becoming a big Dave Stewart fan going through these books. But let's talk about the story. This was clearly written with the trade paper back in mind. Not that it's a bad thing overall, but the issue abruptly ends with Gallo taking a phone call. Now, there are plot points that are touched upon, but the seeds aren't even planted firmly yet, which indicates to me that we aren't really through the first act of the story yet. And I think if you're going to plunk down two ninety nine, you should get a complete point A to point B story, or at least a solid section of story. So at least when you end the issue, you get some sort of uh, sense of completion. It's kind of important to me. And I remember, of course, back in Bronze Age and Silver Age, they were self-contained. And even with the Bird Era, once you saw a really tight continuity, you would still have a simple point A, point B, point C story arc, beginning, middle, and end. Uh, just or Story points. Even though it was part of a bigger arc, the issue stood alone. And you could actually enjoy that here. That's kind of the weak point. We start seeing the beginning. And maybe this is something that reads better in trade. Even though I really enjoyed the story, it just barely touched it at this point. We get just an inkling of what's to come, which kind of detracts from it. But the story's good enough that I still kind of overlook that. And so overall, even though the story is incomplete, it does hurt the scoring. I'm going to give this issue uh, roughly three out of five S shields just because the art is sharp enough to keep your attention. The story setting is great. Um, Tim sales backgrounds really stand out and Dave Stewart's colors just nail exactly what this story needs. So three out of five S shields. And here we are in round two, week one. Uh, wow. It's been a long road, but we're finally getting down to the nitty gritty and to speed things along. Um, we're going to get a chance to vote twice this week. And please do so. It will help out in determining who you choose to be the official Man of Steel of Superman Forever Radio. And this week, you'll be able to vote between George Reeves of The Adventures of Superman versus Dean Cain of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. In the animated world, you'll be able to vote for Tim Daly versus Adam Baldwin 
Tim Daly was the voice of Superman in Superman the Animated Series. Well, Adam Baldwin, who almost had that role, uh, voiced Superman in Superman Doomsday direct-to-DVD movie. Also, the winner of last week will be up for grabs next week. Well, that got a little confusing. Next week, you'll be able to vote for the winner that you chose. Uh, Danny Dark has been sent home with 90% of the vote. Bud Collier has moved on to become the final entry in round two. So look for that next week. Remember to go to supermanforever.com and look at the Metropolis Idol page. Vote two times, count them two times, to choose your official Metropolis Idol. And that wraps up another episode of Superman Forever Radio. Uh, episode 14 is done and done, bagged and boarded. I do want to thank everybody listening for that listens and stays with me. You are appreciated more than I can ever tell you. Um, I just started out doing this show for fun, knowing that you're out there and hopefully enjoying the show. Just the icing on the cake, a big, big, thick layer of icing. But, of course, you can always find me at supermanforever.com. And I am, of course, on iTunes. If you can, leave a review. It does help the show get noticed. And you can also find me over at the Superman Podcast Network at fortressofbailytude.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. I am on Twitter. I am Superman, the number four ever. That's Superman forever. And you can also uh, be a part of the show at any time. Shoot me an email at mail at supermanforever.com. Or uh, call our uh, message line at 703-95-SUPER. And I do appreciate you again for listening. Until next week, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.